Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the 18th chapter of the book of Acts. Today as we continue our journey together through the book of Acts, we're coming toward the end of the second missionary journey and the beginning of the third, which is not quite as dense in terms of information as other um, things we have covered. So our reading today will be beginning in verse 18, and we will read to the end of chapter 18, verse 28. Hear now the word of the living God. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of the brothers, and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincre, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will re return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when, they, when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ, the Christ, was Jesus. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today for the Holy Spirit who indwells those of us who believe to turn the lights on for us, to illumine our minds, to show us the beauty, glory, and gentleness of Christ, and that we might be drawn evermore into a deeper uh, sense of your presence and fellowship with you. And we pray that as this word goes out, it will go out in power and will bring forth fruitfulness that will redound to your own glory. And this we pray. In Christ's name, amen. One of the great things about a closed door is that they're not closed forever. Sometimes God uses a closed door to send us in a direction contrary to the one we have chosen, 
But then as we go in the uh, Christian life, we find that maybe sometimes God later opens that very door. And we have an example of this in Acts chapter 18. In Acts chapter 16, the text tells us that Paul wanted to go into Asia, but the Holy Spirit forbade it. So he kept on and eventually ended up carrying the gospel itself into Europe. But that did not mean that God had forgotten Asia. It might have seemed so, yet in the province uh, or province of Asia was the major city of Ephesus. Probably somewhere around 750,000 people lived in Ephesus. And it was well known for the temple of Artemis. And so it was a major city, and as Paul wrapped up his second great journey and headed home, he and his companions finally arrived in Ephesus and planted the seeds of what would become a very significant work. Paul spent two years in Corinth, but he spent three years ultimately in Ephesus. Luke seems to have been particularly aware of the importance of this city because now and for the uh, rest of the next two chapters of the book of Acts, he concentrates his account on the city and the church at Ephesus. Luke's concentration on Ephesus leads him to do something that has always been confusing to people trying to map out the missionary journeys of Paul, perhaps a Sunday school teacher. Uh, those who teach Acts know that Paul made three great missionary journeys, followed by his final trip to Jerusalem and Rome. And it's easy to see where the first missionary journey begins and ends. Um, we see that clearly in Acts chapter 13, uh, where in Antioch, set apart for me Barnabas and Paul, and it ends at the close of Acts chapter 14 with the account of the missionaries return to Antioch to report. Uh, on the church and the work that had been done and it's easy to see where the second missionary journey begins after Acts chapter 15 and where the third journey actually ends Acts 21 but here's the problem it's not so easy to see where the second journey ends and the third journey begins because uh, the ending of the second journey and the beginning of the third journey are run together in Acts 18 it's easy to read past them and not really understand what's happening. However, there is a division. It is found between verses 22 and 23. Verse 22 says that Paul landed at Caesarea and went up. The verse does not specify where he went up, but in the Bible it usually means Jerusalem. And greeted the church and then went down from Jerusalem to Antioch. In Antioch, Paul would have reported on his second missionary journey as he reported on the first. And then verse 23 says, after spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia, Phrygia, and uh, strengthening all of the disciples there. These words mark the beginning of the third and final journey. And so why isn't the division between these two great efforts by Paul more clearly marked? The reason is that I think is that Luke's interest shifts from the journeys themselves to the establishment of a very solid church at Ephesus. And at the end of the second journey, which we are dealing with now, Paul passed through Ephesus briefly 
and met with some success. Therefore, on the third journey, he returns back to Ephesus again and spends two years there. The period of service became the longest period of ministry by Paul in any place. Now let's take a moment to look at what we can draw from this particular text after those words of introduction. We run into a husband and wife team. They are named for us Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, they are mentioned six times in the Bible. Sometimes Priscilla's name comes first and sometimes Aquila's name. I think it's three and three. And of course scholars and commentators have made a large uh, a lot of noise about why one's name is mentioned before the other. Normally in this time period, in this culture, the husband's name would come first. Why does Priscilla's name come first? I think because of the context and what happens, and I'll elaborate on that more in a moment. But uh, as we study it, the first thing we notice is that new workers are provided for this field. Several are mentioned in this particular chapter. First, there are Priscilla and Aquila, who had already been introduced to us in Acts chapter 18. Paul met them in Corinth, and they traveled with him to Ephesus and ended up hosting a church in their home there. Second, we are told, Apollos, an interesting and eloquent man who came to Asia from Alexandria in North Africa. God was providing people to help Paul in the work. He helps us in the same way today. Priscilla and Aquila were hardworking people. They were tent makers by trade, which probably meant they worked in leather since most of the tents were usually made of animal skins. They were not from the upper classes, certainly, though many think Priscilla had a measure of wealth, but they were not upper class people. They were probably not particularly well educated, and they were Jews. They had been living in Rome, but when the Emperor Claudius issued the well-known edict banishing the Jews from Rome, Priscilla and Aquila left the capital of the empire and went to Corinth. When Paul wrote to the Romans, which he did from Corinth on the second missionary journey, he said that he wanted those at Rome to greet Priscilla and Aquila, Romans 16.3, sometime. During the year and, ha and a half that Paul spent in Corinth, Priscilla and Aquila must have left Corinth, gone back to Rome, probably because the edict of Claudius had been lifted. Maybe uh, all they did was to wrap up their affairs in Rome. They apparently come back to Corinth rather quickly since the passage we are studying, they were present to accompany Paul to Ephesus when he left Corinth at the end of his ministry there. So here's a couple who, Though they had no particular status in the Roman world, they had no exec exceptional educational credentials, were nevertheless active Christian people, and they were mobile. They traveled with Paul and were helpful to him in his ministry, not only now, but also later. They seemed to have been willing to relocate for the sake of the infant growing church. And so they had a real passion, obviously, for the church, a real passion for church planting, and were willing to, in many ways, inconvenience themselves to see churches planted all over the known world and the empire. Now, 
they traveled with Paul. They were helpful to him in his ministry. And uh, they were regarded with great respect. We learned some interesting things about this couple from the scattered references to them in the New Testament. Already in this chapter, verse 3, we found that Paul lived with them when he was at Corinth. He had come to Corinth from Macedonia and at that point had run out of money, so this couple opened their home to the Apostle Paul and labored with him not only in their mutual trade of tent making, but also during the time they lived together at that city. And again in Romans 16, Paul says, they risk their lives for me. We don't know how or for what reason. We presume he's referring to something that happened in Corinth. There must have been an occasion on which the Jews tried to make trouble, though it did not seem to have affected Paul directly. How wonderful that when Paul was perhaps a bit down and a bit discouraged, being in financial need and having left his co-workers, God provided a wonderful couple who were willing even to risk their lives for him and the sake of the gospel. When they got to Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila apparently established themselves in a home uh, where they could have conducted their business, where eventually the church met. In 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 9, Paul says, Aquila and Priscilla send greetings, adding, and so does the church that meets in their house. So we have an indication that this remarkable couple were not only co-workers with Paul, but also hosted the church and thus were serviceable in the ministry. You don't have to have reverend in front of your name to be useful in the kingdom of God. You don't have to be uh, the most intellectually erudite, brilliant person to be used in the kingdom of God. You have to have a willing heart. You have to have availability. You have to be faithful. And God can use you greatly, even in a city like this, to accomplish great things for his kingdom. By the way, this church started when a young couple moved here from Colorado Springs uh, and petitioned Mission to North America in Atlanta for a PCA church work to be started. And for an entire year or more before Pam and I arrived, this couple, Bill and Tammy Fry, organized the original core group of this church. Neither had a seminary. They were bright, capable, sharp, godly, wonderful people. And I have nothing but the highest regard for them. But they sacrificed a lot of their time and energy and effort in becoming responsible for this church. It's never a one-man show. Never, ever. And so God blessed uh, the ministry of the apostle by providing for him such godly, good, serving friends. But then we turn the page and see a new worker show comes on the scene, and his name is Apollos. And Apollos was quite different from Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla were Jews. Apollos was a Gentile. They were a married couple. He was single. They were working people. He was an intellectual, a class A intellectual. And he came uh, from Alexandria in Egypt. Alexandria was a a remarkable center of learning like Athens, but much more serious in scholarship. Alexandria was the city of the philosopher Philo, 
the famous Jewish philosopher who was well-versed not only in Greek philosophy of the day, but also the Old Testament, who interpreted much of the Old Testament in Greek terms. Also, um, Apollos had been educated in Alexandria, and it's tempting to think that he probably knew Philo, though nothing in the New Testament tells us differently. Now, Philo had an interesting way of interpreting the Old Testament. He used the allegorical method, which uh, was, was uh, very inconsistent to say the least, but at least he dealt with the text and attempted to understand it. Acts chapter 18 tells us several very important facts about Apollos. First, he was a learned man. That is, he had acquired the learning of his day. He had gone through what we would call university, graduate school, and his credentials were impressive. Apollos had a thorough knowledge of scriptures. The reference is not to the New Testament scriptures. Of course, they were being written and circulated, uh, but they were not in Egypt. The reference is rather to the Old Testament, and here again, he probably was tutored by Philo, a master at handling the Old Testament. If Apollos knew the scriptures well, it is probable that he had been in touch with and perhaps even studied under Philo, and would therefore probably have adopted his approach to the scriptures. Apollos had been instructed in the way of the Lord, verse 25. It's hard to know how to take this sentence. When we read the Lord, we usually naturally think of Jesus Christ, but it, that may be the case. Later on in the verse, it says that Apollos taught about Jesus accurately. He knew something about Jesus. On the other hand, the word Lord could also be Yahweh of the Old Testament. And the Lord often refers to Yahweh uh, in the knowledge of the Old Testament, and so therefore he probably knew something of both. Apollos spoke with great fervor. He did not merely know the Old Testament with a detached intellectual and academic awareness. He had passion. The scriptures and teachings were important to him. So when he spoke about them and taught them, he did so with energy that comes from the Holy Spirit. I take the word spirit here not to be human spirit, but to be the Holy Spirit. So when he spoke and he taught, he did so boiling over with, so, so to speak, the Holy Spirit. It just oozed out of his pores. And so he was a powerful and effective orator, but he was also spiritually supercharged, as it were, by the Holy Spirit. He would have had the skills of Greek oratory. I'm sure he had read Aristotle's book, Rhetoric, and he understood uh, the dynamics and the structure of how to deliver and speak and debate. He knew how to hold an audience, as it were, in the palm of his hand, and how to develop points, and how to use language to win and persuade his hearers. But what is mentioned here most is his fervor, his passion. And that means not merely skill, but something with conviction deeply embedded in his heart. He was a very popular, well-known, well-respected orator. As a matter of fact, if you read the book of 1 Corinthians, there were divisions in the church at Corinth because some people had become 
followers of Apollos. Some were following Paul. Some were following Cephas, Peter. And some were following Christ. They were probably the worst of all. Saying that we've got Christ, you know. The rest of you just have men. But Apollos was gifted. He was very gifted. And he taught about Jesus accurately. That's an important thing for Apollos to have done. But in order to understand it, we need to add, as the text does itself, that although Apollos had this very important asset, he also had a liability. He knew only the baptism of John. What in the world does that mean? Well, the baptism of John was a baptism of what? Repentance. It was repentance in view that the kingdom of God is coming and Messiah is coming. And so he understood the baptism of John, but he did not understand New Covenant baptism. He did not understand how, uh, as we see earlier in the book of Acts, the New Covenant concept of baptism. Baptism uh, by water, replacing circumcision. Apollos was well-educated. He was a well-traveled man. We can imagine that he probably in his youth went to Jerusalem, especially if he had an interest in the Old Testament. And while he was there, he might have come under the influence of the preaching of John the Baptist. If he had a sensitive spiritual heart, he probably responded to John's preaching. We don't know if he was baptized, but he was telling people to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. Now, commentators and scholars debate constantly whether or not Apollos was a saved man. Well, let me end all that. Of course he's a saved man. He couldn't possibly have done what he did without being a saved man, and he certainly couldn't have had the fervor of the Holy Spirit without being a saved man. But he was limited in his understanding, let's say, of the fullness of the gospel and the fullness of who Jesus was and what he did and why it matters so much. So he's a man who knew the Old Testament. He understood that the Messiah, uh, who he was, I mean, was to do. And I think it meant that Apollos taught about Jesus accurately. He knew what Jesus was to do, but he wasn't sure that the Messiah had completely come. I think he was a regenerate man. Now, how do you instruct a learned man like this? What do you do with somebody like him? He's extremely gifted. He's a man of eloquence and ability and apparently even mightily used by God since he went to the synagogues and argued or debated effectively with the Jews and other people. Should he have been rebuked? Should he have been opposed? Should he have been refuted? What actually happened is quite different. And let me introduce what happened from a parallel story in church history. At the time of the Reformation in England, there was a man, just like Apollos, whose name was Hugh Latimer. He lived from 1490 to 1555. He was a very learned man. He had a thorough knowledge of the Bible and could speak with eloquence. He even had considerable influence in the church because he was a bishop. Latimer was eventually martyred for his faith being burnt at the stake along with Nicholas Ridley. This was the occasion on which he spoke to those 
when he spoke those heroic words that are so often quoted in church history courses. And what were those words? He said this, be be brave, Master Ridley, and play the man. That's kind of like us saying, uh, get a spine, you know, man up. That's what he said, really, man up. Be brave, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by the grace of God, light such a candle in England as I trust you shall never be put out. He did not know the gospel like many in his day, and he thought that the way to get to heaven was by good works. That's what Latimer originally believed. However, God sent into his life a young monk who knew Latimer and admired him. This monk was known as Little Bilney because he was short. He did not have much education. Nobody thought very much of him. But Bilney was a genuinely converted man, and he wondered how in the world would it be possible for me to get the gospel to somebody like Hugh Latimer. Bilney thought that Latimer would be a tremendous force for the Reformation in England if he could just hear the gospel. So Bilney prayed about this, and he finally hit upon an idea, and it's an ingenious idea. Priests were required to hear those who wanted to confess their sins, so one day when Latimer was serving in the church, Bilney went up to him and tugged at his sleeve and asked Latimer to hear his confession. Latimer said he would, so they went into the confessional, and Bilney confessed the gospel to him. He told him how he was a sinner, how he was unable to save himself by his own good works, how Jesus had died for him, and how now by faith the righteousness of Jesus had been imputed to him apart from good works. Apparently Bilney had been reading Martin Luther. That is what he confessed to Hugh Latimer, and in that way, Latimer heard the gospel for the very first time and was converted. He was converted in the confessional from a little insignificant monk who had the guts to confront him with the gospel. It was a very important moment in the English Reformation. Something like that also happens here in the case of Apollos. I can imagine when Apollos came to Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila, who were there at that time, must have said to each other, this guy, wow, he's a very able man. Let's, uh, let's go hear him. And Apollos was teaching in the synagogue, so they went to the synagogue and had the same kind of reaction uh, many Christians have when they visit some so-called Christian churches. They hear a minister who is learned and eloquent, but he doesn't quite fill his message full of the gospel. They must have said to themselves, the man certainly knows the Bible. He can quote the Old Testament effectively. He's such a gifted, skilled orator, but he doesn't know that Jesus, we know, who came and died for our sins, was raised from the dead and justifies us by faith and is now ascended into heaven and is coming back. And so after the service, let's just imagine, they were standing in the vestibule And they must have said to each other, what do you suppose we can do? Now, the smart thing they did was not to stand up and confront him publicly in the synagogue. That wouldn't do. So let's say that they got together with Apollos, and he enjoyed their hospitality, and they began to tell him about Jesus. Now, more than likely, since Priscilla's name is mentioned first, she probably knew more 
stuff, or let's say theology and doctrine and understanding than her husband Aquila. Or maybe she was more gifted verbally. But more than likely, she began the explanation. Aquila chimed in as well. They're talking to a, a, a veritable genius. And so Apollos must have said, what? Uh, who, what do you mean? What do you mean Jesus has come? John uh, came only to announce the way. They would have replied, that's true. John the Baptist was the forerunner to the Messiah, but the Messiah came. As a matter of fact, John pointed to him when he baptized him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Apollos would have wondered, is this really true? Can I believe that? What are the evidences? So they must have explained the way of God more adequately telling Apollos all that Jesus had said and done. I must say that Apollos was much more receptive to teaching than many members of the clergy I have known and went to school with. For he received the word of God humbly, believed it, assimilated it with the knowledge that he already had. It must have been some kind of explosion for this man who was so gifted and so versed in the Old Testament to finally put it all together. Um, astounding. Now, many people argue over who wrote the book of Hebrews. Some believe that the Apostle Paul wrote it. Some believe maybe even Luke wrote it. I'm in the camp that Apollos wrote it. And the reason why is because the book of Hebrews is the most eloquent Greek in the entire New Testament. Second, the book of Hebrews is the most sustained and one of the best arguments of any book in the New Testament. And it just seems to me, and this is just an opinion, you can file it away, seems to me that the author of the book of Hebrews may have been someone like Apollos if it wasn't Apollos himself. But he humbled himself. He was taught by these two, quote, lay people. And he was a great help uh, to those who by the grace of God had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews. He was gifted in apologetics and uh, defense of the faith and a sustained argument. And so we've covered what I wanted to cover initially, all of these things that happens as Paul ends the second missionary journey and begins the third but Apollos' story is a fascinating glimpse into the life and history of the early church. And it is rich in practical spiritual truth. Here's three of them. Number one, learning and fervor, though valuable gifts, are not in themselves enough for Christian workers. We must know Jesus Christ. We must know Christ. I've told this story before. I, I went to a presbytery meeting in the state of Louisiana in Baton Rouge, and I was sitting in the uh, church, and uh, one of a very gifted professor from a seminary came to speak to us, and he preached to us out of the Old Testament, and he never pointed to Jesus at all. Now, that doesn't mean that it was necessarily an illegitimate sermon. That doesn't mean that it wasn't much in the sermon that was helpful. This man's extremely gifted, and I enjoyed listening to his sermon, but I kept waiting for the punchline, and the punchline was never delivered. It was like a history lesson on the book of Habakkuk, but he never got to Jesus in the sermon. And so I was a little bit distressed by that, and I had just gotten the gospel 
understood more deeply in my life, and I was like wrestling with it. And then this new young, uh, probably the youngest teaching elder I've seen in the PCA came up and administered the sacrament of communion, and all he talked about was Jesus. And everything that he left out, he, in the communion service, I, it made my heart swell with joy just to hear what he said about communion. But that's one thing you need to do when you listen to preaching. Does it make much of Jesus Christ? Does the, the pastor decrease and does Christ increase as the message is being preached? Even the knowledge of Scripture and skill in presenting them are not enough. I emphasize this truth because there are always people in churches who may not be saved but know a great deal about the Bible. They know the Old Testament. They know the New Testament. And if you ask them about Bible stories, they can tell you all of them. They can even teach it to other people, but they do not know Christ. There is no Jesus in it. They do not know that He died for them, that He rose again for their justification. They know His name, but they do not know Him personally as Savior and Lord. They are not disciples. One of my heroes is Jack Miller. And Jack Miller uh, created the ministry of sonship, basically designed for missionaries who were struggling on the missionary field, but it had a tremendous impact for the gospel. Uh, not everybody loves Jack Miller, but I do. And one of the reasons I love him was he would always teach a class on evangelism at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And the first thing he would do in the first class, the first day, is this is a class on evangelism. And he said, here's what I want you to do. He said, I want you to pair off with your neighbor, and I want you to present to each other the gospel. Share the gospel with each other. And he said, you would be shocked at the number of students who couldn't do that who didn't know how to share the gospel. Jack Miller would then assign that everybody would read the preface to the book of Galatians by Martin Luther, which he did. He gave out to everyone. He had more people converted in his evangelism classes than most people did in their churches. Why? Because he knew Jesus, and he knew that a lot of them did not. A lot of them were like the scribes and the Pharisees. They just didn't get it. And so, wherever you go to church, whatever you listen to, whatever you invest your time, whatever podcast you listen to, whatever preacher you listen to, it's a hard time to be a preacher because there's so many great ones that everybody's listening to and you just sort of feel also ran most of the time uh, because they'll come up and tell you, did you hear this great sermon? Did you hear that great sermon? And that's kind of looking at the girl you're dating and did you see how beautiful that girl was? And did you see how beautiful... And how wonderful she looks. It's hard to be a preacher. Because you have to be humble and nobody wants to be that, do they? Kidding but only half. You must know Jesus Christ. To know the other is great, but you can't know all that. You can know all that and still miss. You're just a splendid exercise in missing the point. Different kinds of people are needed to do Christ's work. That's what this chapter tells me. Different kinds of people. God does not have an assembly line. 
Uh, I worked on an assembly line one time uh, in between my first year of college uh, and the second in the summer. I worked on a television factory, and I would take a picture tube off an assembly line, drop it into a chassis, bolt it down with four screws, and, and uh, do the next one as it kept coming, kept coming. And I did that for eight hours a day with two breaks and lunch. And I would go home at night, and all night long I was doing it in my sleep. Doing it, doing it, doing it. Couldn't stop. Obsessed with it. So glad to see college start back. So glad I never had to do that job again. But God doesn't run an assembly line about who he uses. He uses weird, strange people. And he uses average people. And he uses people that nobody would ever notice. He uses all kinds of people to do his work. He used Aquila. He used Priscilla. They were very different from Apollos. And Paulus was very different from Paul. Paul was a feisty Jewish rabbi. Aquila, Priscilla, Apollos, and Paul were all needed in the church. How do we know? We know because God called them. Paul with his energetic missionary fervor. Apollos who watered the seed that Paul had sown. Priscilla and Aquila who settled down, opened their home, and were hosts to the developing church. Every one of them were necessary. Have you ever asked the Lord, how do you want to use me? How do you, where do I fit in? You've given me gifts. You've given me talents. You've given me at least a spiritual gift, a unique capacity, granted and gifted by the Holy Spirit to do something in the body of Christ so that the body of Christ will be built up. Have you asked that question, how can I be used? Because as far as I know, Priscilla and Aquila did not have a seminary degree and were not ordained by anyone. Neither was Apollos, for that matter. So if you're Christ's disciple, you have been gifted, you have been called, and it's up to you to find where you can serve and use your gift because the church is impoverished when you don't use your gift. And if you lack workers for Christ where we are and feel the need, we should pray about it, asking God for Pray to the Lord of the harvest to provide workers for the harvest. When I pray for this church, which is usually daily, I pray that the Lord will send us laborers for the harvest because the harvest is coming. It's coming. And we need to get ready. We need to train leadership. We need to build up the body. We need to equip people for ministry. And we need to, by God's grace and through vision, see ministries that need to be done. And we need to put people in areas where they can use their gifts. That's a healthy, live, functioning church. And I'm praying that God will give us all we need to do that. Now would you bow for me, with me for prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text today. It is and has much for our edification. We pray that you would take this word and work it into us. Some of us may be like Apollos. We know a lot about the Bible or a good bit about the Bible. We, we understand the, the, a lot of the concepts in the Bible. We, we can tell people where to find stuff in the Bible. We don't know Jesus. And we pray that your spirit would draw a circle around our hearts and draw us to the Savior and we would see him with spiritual eyes and be drawn and attracted and wooed to him and trust him and him alone for a right relationship with you forever. 
Father, we pray that our body would begin to see gifts, gifts that are already in operation, people who are already doing ministry. Can we see ourselves uh, getting on board with them to develop new ministries and to help with existing ministries? Now, Father, we pray that you would bless this word to our lives for the sake and glory of your dear Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.